Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Namrata Yadav, a research analyst at the Institute. During his visit to Asia in May 2022, U.S. President Joe Biden announced that 13 nations will be joining the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or the IPEF. The announcement marks the beginning of the evolution of a rules-based economic framework for the region. For a long time, discussions on Indo-Pacific have been dominated by security issues. The IPEF will substantively complement these discussions by moving on regional standards for cross-border digital trade and connectivity, investment, technology, and sustainable development. To understand implications of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for the region, I'm joined by Dr. Amitendu Palit. Dr. Palit is a Senior Research Fellow and Research Lead Trade and Economics at the Institute of South Asian Studies. Welcome to South Asia Chat, Dr. Palit. Thank you so much, Namrata. My pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you, Dr. Palit. Um, so I would begin with asking, um, the IPF has an interesting list of participating countries with members of ASEAN, India, and advanced OECD economies. Do you think the nature of member countries will amplify economic potential of the IPEF with countries such as India and Thailand? Moreover, what will strong Southeast Asian presence mean for relations between South Asia and Southeast Asia? Thank you, Namrata, for asking this question. I think it's a very important point to understand the economic and uh, geoeconomic significance of the uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework that was announced. Uh, at the outset, uh, what we see is that we had uh, 13 economies which were in the first list of announced members of the framework. Subsequently, we have had an entrant from the Pacific Islands. Fiji has joined. Now, uh, even though Fiji is small, uh, the total economic size of the grouping is uh, around two-fifths of the world GDP. And it is noticeable that uh, we have uh, strong economies in this club. So the there are four economies from the top 10 economies of the world. Uh, we have uh, Korea, Japan, the United States, and India in this club. And we also have uh, the prominent ASEAN economies. We have Australia, New Zealand uh, in together. I think it's a very interesting combination of uh, economies where one uh, comes across the advanced OECD economies, uh, which are, of course, the high-income ones. There are the non-OECD high-income economies from Southeast Asia. And at the same time, there are also large emerging market uh, developing economies. So uh, there is no doubt about the fact that this is a formidable economic block. And I think uh, when one looks at the market size, when one looks at the population size, and most importantly, when one looks at the degree of uh, institutional development across these countries, I think there is a little doubt about the fact that uh, when one uh, focuses closely on the IPEF agenda, and compares it with the degree of institutional development that one gets to see among its members, uh, it's a well-thought-out decision. And it will be possible uh, for the IPF to actually move quite closely on its agenda through the group of economies that it has assembled. And to that extent, uh, this has begun on a good note. And one hopes that in the months and years to come, uh, the grouping will be able to 
considerably achieve the kind of aspirations that it has. Um, all right. I mean, given what you said about the agenda of the IPF, I would like to ask you if, um, considering that the IPF does not promise greater U.S. market access and does not talk a lot about the enforcement mechanisms, how effectively will the IPF actually lead to economic results for participating countries and will it actually help U.S. boost its position in the region? I would first uh, point out that I think uh, this has been one of the important uh, elements, a distinctive feature of the IPEF that it had really hasn't begun uh, declaring itself as a conventional free trade agreement because uh, any free trade agreement uh, with the United States as a part of that free trade agreement or for that matter, even if it were not there, would have actually proceeded on the basis of what we typically describe as uh, reciprocal preferential accesses into each other's markets and that would have meant uh, drawing up a long list of items on which there would have been back and forth negotiations of the tariff cuts and the degree of market access that each country is willing to give to the other uh, there's no doubt about the fact that the united states is the biggest market uh, in the world and there would have been this uh, extremely appealing prospect on a large uh, number of IPEF members to get the preferential access into the U.S. market. But I think the fact that the uh, IPEF did not uh, take that path is a welcome sign, is a welcome sign because of the fact that the IPEF has, uh, by not walking down the road that it could have, it has decided to declare a very clear intent that its focus is not on tariff-based market access liberalization. Its focus is on something different. And I think that's an understanding which will remain with this grouping for a long time because typically what happens is that even in a large number of free trade agreements, there could be very exhaustive, very deep announcements of tariff cuts. But even those tariff cuts do not yield sufficient market access to uh, all member countries and do not in the end generate as much of trade and investment as expected because there are other problems that come in the way of free flow of goods, services and investment and standards is one of the most important ones for them. Now, typically we talk about standards when it comes to uh, testing and certification and quality of goods and products that move across borders. Uh, the IPF, uh, I'm not saying is uh, not going to engage in that. It clearly will because one of its main items of focus is resilience of supply chains. And when it looks closely into the resilience of supply chains, certainly it's going to come into the question of standards of components and inputs that are into supply chains. But most importantly, I think uh, the intention here is to take on and go into a process of rulemaking into those areas, which are the newest areas and uh, the biggest challenges that are coming up for international trade. And I would specifically refer to uh, digital trade digitalization and trade uh, which is going to uh, essentially try to achieve the goal of sustainable development. Now when these subjects are taken up uh, I would argue that there is no free trade agreement or in, in fact for that matter no economic partnership agreement in the world today existing as of now which really has looked at these issues comprehensively. We do look at FTAs which has chapters on digital trade, for example, and there are some 
efforts to come into close standards on digital signatures and so on and so forth. But I think what the IPEF, at least in terms of intention, is trying to do is try to go much beyond uh, this entire uh, little question of trade facilitation through digital signatures, but it's actually trying to establish a system of seamless digital connectivity, which would ensure efficient delivery of services and also goods through those processes and in the process enable and uh, make the institutions of good capacity. So when one looks at a subject like e-commerce, for example, uh, there has to be certain common standards for e-commerce for cross-border delivery, and there is no denying that e-commerce is going to be the lifeblood of future trade. Uh, when one looks at the bigger question of digitalization in the connection of e-commerce, one likes to look closely at a question of digital payments and cross-border systems. Connected to those is the question of data transfers and data localizations. And in a somewhat broader sense, when one considers sustainable development, it's not just a question of focusing on renewables, but also taking a very close look at how clean technologies can cross borders and what are the kind of standards that come into their application. Uh, my sense is that down the line, uh, there are efforts in which uh, countries like Singapore are involved, like the Digital Economic Partnership Agreement, which are going to be looked at much more closely uh, by the IPEF for you know, picking up baseline standards. There's going to be some existing drawn, uh, which is going to be drawn up in the regard. Uh, the good part is that this uh, objective as opposed to what we discussed in the beginning, the question of getting reciprocal preferential access in the US market. It's this objective of standard setting which has been considered a virtuous objective by the countries which have joined the IPEF. The very fact that so many countries have been able to join IPEF is a vindication of the fact that they are very serious about the question of standard setting and rulemaking in the region. And finally, uh, remember the other question that you raised. I think uh, the IPEF and by, by underscoring the US leadership in this initiative firmly marks the return of the United States to rulemaking of trade and business in the region. I think uh, the US had vacated the space when it walked out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the first executive decision that President Trump took after assuming office in January 2017. But since that time, uh, there has been this vacuum which has been existing in the region that the United States has not really been around as far as trade and business and commercial routes are concerned. It, it's not a part of the RCEP, it's not a part of the CPTPP. The IPEF finally is a forum through which it is able to come back and it is able to come back and contribute in the areas where it has the decisive competitive advantage in the areas of digital trade, in the areas of clean energy, in the areas of technological growth. Uh, these are clearly the areas where the United States enjoys a strong competitive advantage and it will be in a position to play a leadership role in this regard. That brings me to the next question about, like you mentioned, the new areas of international trade. So clearly the U.S. with the IPF plans on regulatory frameworks in trade, including digital trade, which remains an area where India, which is one of the major players 
participating countries in the IPF is, has continued to not engage. Issues such as data portability and localization remain sensitive in India. So what must India keep in mind while maneuvering through this aspect as part of the IPEF? Again, an excellent question. I think uh, the IPEF is uh, among the various uh, distinct features that it has. One of the distinct features is uh, India's presence in the grouping. And uh, much as the US had left the TPP and vacated its space in the region, India also did something similar by walking out of the RCEP and uh, you know, kind of voluntarily withdrawing from a role that it could have played in regional uh, rulemaking on trade. But now the fact that it's come back in the IPEF and it's going to, at least on paper, contribute constructively to the process of standard stating in the region means that India is prepared to play that role. But the question that arises is that uh, to what extent will it be able to uh, contribute effectively to the large exercise of standard setting? And there are challenges that India will face. The first challenge is going to come in uh, the form of uh, the emphasis on labor and environment standards. Uh, labor and environment standards are typically subjects on which uh, not just India, but a large number of other countries, and I suspect there will be countries from Southeast Asia as well, who will not find it very comfortable to agree to these standards. Labor standards would essentially mean uh, agreeing to a large number of uh, conditions and uh, you know charters of the International Labor Organization to ensure that workers are paid minimum wages in the operations of producing, which would get engaged in trade, either goods or services. Uh, there has to be worker safety. There has to be a large number of other conditions. Now, I think unlike what it was in the past, maybe five, six years ago, it is relatively better prepared uh, to contribute to, let us say, a subject like labor standards, because there are labor reforms that have taken place within India. Uh, we are aware of the four labor codes that the government of India has worked on in bringing together 40 labor laws into this codes, occupation and safety, minimum wages, and so on and so forth. So to an extent, there has been a regulatory growth in India on these subjects, which might make it easier for it to come closer and understand in totality the kind of labor standards which the US and other standards, uh, other countries might propose. The second is the question of environment. I think the environment, again, is a subject which is going to receive much greater participation and enthusiastic endorsement from a country like India as opposed to what it was before. Because India has made very significant commitments at the COP26. India has contributed significantly to the G20 agenda for sustainable development. But when it comes to the question of, let us say, uh, data standards, uh, data regulations, look, I think where India needs to look at the entire issue very carefully is the fact that by what extent does the proposed benchmark or standard in the IPEF differ from what its internal standard trajectory is? If the gap is considerable, the gap is large, then India will need to work on it. We'll have to work with other partners. To an extent, this exercise will become simpler if the IPEF does not insist on binding conditions and on strict enforcement. If it is able to allow exceptions, if it is able to allow flexibilities to individual economies, 
uh, I think a country like India would very much welcome that. Uh, the simple reason being that there's always going to be a gap between the speed at which regulations mature between the various economies. In the United States and Japan and certain other economies, including Singapore and perhaps Korea, uh, the pace of maturing of regulations would be faster because these regulations have already advanced to a certain extent. In India, it might have been relatively slower. It's, it's been much slower even in a country like Indonesia, even probably in Vietnam, who are members of the IPEF. So I think there has to be a realistic understanding of the differences in capacities and the character of the trajectories at which the regulations are moving across these various walk pillars of the IPEF. And if that is accepted, then India should not have a problem in going along and contributing to the IPF. I think the final factor that I'd like to point out in this regard is that uh, India has, uh, as we all know, uh, really developed a very close and very trustworthy partnership with the United States uh, over the years. And I think that partnership is going to be crucial in the IBEF consultations. Look, what we saw is that in spite of there having been visible differences between the United States and India on the question of Russia and Ukraine, both countries have decided to come together and work in the IBEF and also in the court. So I think once that trust has been established, uh, a way forward is not difficult to obtain. That, that brings me to ask you the question about India's readiness for the IPF and what, what do you think motivated India to be a part of the IPF in contrast to its recent attitude towards multilateral agreements like you mentioned the RCEP? India recently concluded bilateral agreements with UAE and Australia, but this is a first multilateral agreement in a while that India has agreed to. So what do you think in particularly um, motivated India to do this? I would uh, think that, uh, you see, what, what has been happening is that, yes, we have been noticing this uh, tendency on part of India to uh, pick up trade partners and economic partners uh, individually, perhaps taking each relationship on the basis of its specific merit and going forward on that. But let's also not forget the fact that there is a certain degree of commonality or similarity in the way India is choosing partners. And let's say, for example, when one looks at India's current uh, strategic partnerships, and if one looks at the Quad, uh, India had a FTA with Japan. It has finished an FTA with Australia. It will probably be working on the United States for more formal trade agreements. That's on one side. But on the West also, India has a quad which is uh, with the United States, Israel, and the United Arab Emirates. And again, while it has finished an FTA with the FTA, United, uh, sorry, with the United Arab Emirates, it's working on something with Israel. Uh, so, what I mean to say is, when I make this point, is that uh, India appears to be working closely with a certain number of countries, which it considers to be like-minded countries. And that is a feeling which is shared by these countries as well. And to that extent, the collective that we see in the IPEF is a group of countries which India will certainly not hesitate to describe as countries with which it is comfortable working. Now, obviously, the degree of likeness, the degree of being on the same wavelength can vary. Uh, 
But these are countries uh, with which India has worked in the past. India is willing to work in the future. There are seven countries from Southeast Asia. India did walk out of the RCEP, but for a very long time. It has been a part of the ASEAN Plus conversation and regional architecture. It continues to have an FTA with the ASEAN. It continues to have uh, bilateral FTAs with Singapore, Malaysia, and uh, Thailand. So I think the understanding over here is that there are countries with which uh, there will not be any problems in working together and fixing agendas. And I think this is where, again, there is also this view that the United States is going to lead the efforts. So if the United States takes a positive role in leading the efforts, uh, there's actually this understanding that the IPEF becomes a group which comprises the United States and those countries with which it is working closely. One can describe them as strategic allies. One can describe them as, uh, you know, good, strong relationships plus defense partnerships and a collective approach. But clearly, countries uh, with which the United States wants to work very closely in assuring its presence in the region and bringing in uh, the U.S. implant on the rules and standards in the region. So to that extent, I think uh, this was... A decision on part of India which uh, would enable it to come back to the multilateral decision-making process uh, to some extent but let's not forget the fact that this multilateral group if the IPEF is described as a multilateral group is a group which comprises countries with which India does enjoy a very deep degree of comfort strategic comfort Thank you, Dr. Palit. Uh, coming back to your point about Fiji becoming the 14th member to join the IPEF, in response to this, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson said that the Asia-Pacific should not become a geopolitical chessboard. What does President Biden's enthusiasm towards Indo-Pacific suggest for geopolitical competition and rivalry in the region? And what can we expect from China in response to the IPEF? China, I think, has already reacted rather strongly. Uh, to the announcement of the IPEF. China has uh, criticized the initiatives uh, from the Quad, and I think the Quad uh, has not uh, come out with a statement saying that uh, you know it's, it's not trying to contain China or anything like that. I think there is this implicit understanding and recognition of the fact that uh, efforts are on, multi-country initiatives are on, uh, to develop alliances that would try to counter China's influence in the region, and the Indo-Pacific region is being specifically conceived for that. The inclusion of Fiji is significant because of the fact that uh, Fiji was uh, not really in the scheme of things in the beginning when, when countries were being spoken about and thought of as prospective members. But I think the fact that the Pacific Islands have suddenly become a spot where a lot of United States and China influence building competition is being witnessed. And the Pacific Islands are being noted to be a place where the, where the Chinese efforts uh, to invest more in the creation of economic assets and cultural assets is noticeable. I think there was this understanding that the uh, Pacific Islands should not be ignored 
as a group of countries, uh, which can also contribute significantly to the Indo-Pacific Economic Initiative. And the very fact that it is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and we are referring to Fiji as a representative of the Pacific Island countries, uh, makes the Pacific Island countries very natural entrance in this framework. So I think the entry of Fiji to an extent marks the enthusiasm on part of the United States and its allies to work closely with the Pacific Island countries. What one can certainly expect is that uh, we, we should not uh, assume that uh, the competition, the strategic competition uh, that, that's been a part of the United States in China rivalry over the last five to ten years, we should not see the end of that competition in any respect. Uh, there's going to be manifestation of that competition in the region. And uh, in a sense, the IPEF uh, is also a framework where the security understanding is very, very prominent. I mean, this is a framework which uh, has grown out of an understanding of security. And this is a framework where the economic interests and the security agenda are never going to be delinked. And one of the examples of that is this particular specific geography of the Pacific Islands. So I think we will continue to see various edges, aspects, elements of the manifestation of the US-China rivalry. And it might just be the Pacific Islands coming up in the future months, which might see more intense action in this regard. Thank you for sharing your insights, Dr. Palit. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates on social media. We are on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. <laughs>